what a great time of worship. I'll encourage you, church, to go ahead and open your Bibles. And if you'll open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is where we find ourselves this morning, continuing to make our way through the Gospels, uh, although it be very brief and rapid, so to speak, as we've, for the last few weeks, we were in uh, Matthew twice, we are in Mark last week, and last week we saw uh, some pointed words from Christ regarding His return and our instruction as His church for how we are to look to that, how we are to act in the meantime, and what we are to do, where we saw the reassuring hope that Christ's return is certain and that there is nothing that stands in His way. And so we don't, we don't look to some fearful list of necessary things that need to happen or, or some equation that has to be solved in order for him to return, that all that stands in the way is the will of the Father at which he will send the Son. So how can we, the, the question then for us was how can we be on guard? And we are on guard by clinging to his enduring word. We move now to this week to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, another incredible chapter as a whole here, and we're really going to take a look at the chapter as a whole, although you see our portion of text is a little bit smaller that we'll be honing in on, but I want us to look at this whole chapter because it really points to a greater picture for understanding the deity of Christ, what is necessary for seeing the grandeur of Christ, and it will elevate our view of Christ to go beyond what can simply satisfy our earthly desires. That my goal for us this morning is to leave with an increasingly grand view of Christ and therefore an increasingly grand view of God's working in Christ to bring us to a knowledge of himself and to salvation. So I'll ask you to stand, church, in honor of the reading of God's word as we read our text for this morning starting with John 6, verse 25 through 31. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would guard me from error, help me to show myself uh, a workman approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. God, I pray that you would enlighten our understanding, illuminate our minds and hearts to, through your spirit to see your word and then to rightly apply your word as we seek to follow you in obedience. Not to simply satisfy ourselves or to affirm some tradition that we cling 
to, but God, I pray that your word would be our tradition, that your word would be our standard, and that we would seek to be filled and find our joy in no one but Christ alone. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. So, as I said, I want us to look at this entire story because the greater context here paints a picture for us of Christ and of God's providence in Christ that I think is just incredible. So, directly preceding our text for, from today, we have some very famous yet interesting events so if we back up to the beginning of the chapter, we see the well-known story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, we have become so familiar with this story that we've allowed ourselves to become numb to the reality of what Jesus did in that moment, feeding the entire crowd with five barley loaves and two fish. And we're like, man. Jesus fed the 5,000. Like we just like just assume is uh, have it's assumed knowledge at this point rather than really us taking uh, it for what it is a, a true miracle. Now what's truly interesting is what happens before and after this miracle. So before feeding the 5,000, Jesus had healed a man at the pool of Siloam by simply telling him to pick up his mat and walk. So another truly remarkable miracle, a man who sat there day after day as others made their way into the pool so that he couldn't even get in there. So one problem is that Jesus did this on the Sabbath. He healed this man at the pool on the Sabbath. So Jesus looks at this group that's gathered to persecute him. As so because he did this on the Sabbath, they come to accuse him of having done wrong. And Jesus looks at this group that's gathered to persecute him. And as we read in chapter 5, verse 18, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, this is the great contradiction of our Jewish friends. So many of them will call Jesus simply a good teacher. Well, good teachers don't call God their father. As in, he is one with the Father. Good teachers don't do that. So, we see as we move further into chapter 5, and you go to verse 45 of chapter 5, we read this. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would also believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So this is Jesus speaking to their accusations of him. And they come to bring a charge against him, an accusation. And he says, I won't accuse you, but there's one who accuses you. And it's Moses. Because they're, they're trying to hold Jesus accountable to the law. Right? Of course, written by Moses. And Jesus says, there's one who already accuses you. I don't even have to accuse you. And the one that accuses you is Moses. And he, then he makes another accusation of them. The one on whom you have set your hope. See, your hope is that you can adhere completely and perfectly to the law of Moses. And in that you stand accused because you can't. For, but then Jesus also 
points out their misunderstanding of Moses, of the law, of the word of God. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So these words from Jesus are stunning, showing that if if you truly believe him, then you must truly believe God's word. Why? To what did Jesus point as the words of truth regarding the Messiah? To what did Jesus refer when teaching? The scriptures, the Tanakh, the Torah or law, the Netubim, prophets or Ketubim, writings, the Old Testament, law, prophets, and writings. Jesus pointed to these things to show all the things concerning himself. So Jesus looks at this group and says in verse 38 of chapter 5, And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So the issue that Jesus is getting at leading into our passage for today of chapter 6 is life. That do you cling to your ability to hold to the word as life or do through the word do you see the truth of who Jesus is and then come to him seeking eternal life? That's what's at stake here. That's what he's trying to open the eyes of this crowd to see. You think you know the word, but the word doesn't dwell in you. Otherwise, if it did, you would be coming to me and you would realize who I am. So it's after this interaction that Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and a large crowd follows him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, is what we read. Now another detail not to miss here is that we read the Passover was at hand. The Passover, of course, celebrates what? The Lord's deliverance of Israel from slavery. So we've got lots to to keep in mind here. Who was leading Israel at the time of the Passover? Moses. So we've got many different references to Moses here as part of this story. And all of it is important to understand as we move now into our interaction here, our story in chapter 6. So Jesus goes to the other side of Galilee here in chapter 6. Large crowd follows him and it's the time of the Passover feast. So, of course, we know as the story goes, we see the story of the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus looks up. He tells Philip, how are we to feed these people? Philip is like, it's not even possible. All we have here is five barley loaves and two fish. And, of course, we know the miracle. Jesus goes on and he, through this five barley loaves and two fish, feeds this entire crowd of people. Now, we get to the end of, of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And we see the crowd's reaction to Jesus' miracle. What did they understand of Jesus' miracle? What did they expect to see on the other side of this? We'll go to chapter 6 there, verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So, 
You might say to yourself, what's, what's wrong with this? They want to take him and make him king. They, they call him a prophet. This is frequently used throughout the Gospels by those who don't truly see who Jesus is, for he's not just any prophet. Now, what, is, what do we see happening here? If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, we see this reference, this prophecy spoken of Moses to Moses from the Lord. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. But then we go on to read at the end of Deuteronomy that not one rose again who was like Moses. And so this prophecy went unfilled, unfulfilled in the time of Moses, but until now, the people see Jesus performing these signs, feeding them with bread, and he's already referenced Moses. Moses accuses you, the one on whom you have set your hope, and perceiving that they want to make him king, Jesus withdraws again to the mountain by himself. And again, you might say, what? Still, I don't see what's wrong with this. They think that he's the, the one that was spoken about in Deuteronomy 18, the one like Moses. They want to make him king. Why, why is this wrong? Why does Jesus withdraw? Because they're concerned about what Jesus can provide them as an earthly deliverer, not as Savior and Lord. They want to take Jesus, march him into Jerusalem, and have him lead a revolt against Rome, all the while providing them food, healings, and miracles along the way. They want to be led by their magic prophet king who can provide them with food and lead them back into political power. So Jesus, seeing that they still don't get it, withdraws to the mountain to be with the Father. Now what happens next? His disciples get in a boat and they start heading for Capernaum. And what happens to the disciples as they're out in the middle of the sea? A storm comes and begins to toss them around. And when they look out, who do they see walking to them on the water? Jesus. And they're two to three miles offshore is what we read. So Jesus walks out to them on the water. Again, another point to keep locked in. Again, so we, we're seeing some of these things to keep locked in. It's Passover time, right? And we see that they're accused to the law of Moses. They perceive Jesus to be the prophet, right? And now we have this instance of Jesus walking out to the disciples on the water. And it's smack dab in the middle because if you'll notice... Then we get to the other side of this occasion of Jesus walking on the water and we're still dealing with the same crowd from the feeding of the 5,000, the same crowd that wanted to make him king. Well, why would John just throw this detail in the middle of this story that uh, is about Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then interaction with the crowd? Why would he throw this detail in the middle of that about Jesus walking on the water? Because it's an important part of the story. And we're going to see that here in a little bit. So just keep that locked in. So the next day, the crowd realizes that Jesus is gone and his disciples went to the other side. So they follow. This crowd that had been fed, filled their bellies with fish and loaves and they wanted to make him king. They follow the disciples because they're like, Jesus is no longer here. He didn't go with his disciples. We don't know where he went, but we're going to go with the disciples and see if we can find him. So that's where we pick up with our text for today in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, 
when did you come here? So again, they, they're trying to make sense of this in their head. They, they know they didn't see Jesus leave with the disciples, but something's happened here. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So this crowd has gone to all the trouble to seek out Jesus on the other side of the sea of Galilee because of the signs that they've seen him do. Now the huge problem is with the heart behind this. Because again, you might be saying like, this crowd like eagerly wants to be with Jesus. Why is it so wrong? What is, what is the issue? And the issue is the heart. They're seeking him out because of the signs. Only it's not because of these signs affirming everything that he's been pointing to in the scriptures. It's not because these signs affirm his deity as he's been referencing. It's not because they affirm his identity as the Messiah, but because they want more bread and more healings. They want a king, an earthly deliverer. So Jesus calls out their foolish hearts. And there's a profound connection between the crowd and all mankind here. Jesus calls out their foolish hearts and says, I, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And here's the profound connection between this crowd and all mankind is that we are perpetually hungry for the wrong bread. We are perpetually hungry. That means constantly, consistently, always hungry for the wrong bread. In the words of Augustine, God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. We are so hungry for the wrong bread that we are selfishly hungry. What do I mean by that? Even when our bellies are full of the wrong bread, we're trying to fill our arms with it. Why? Because that's all our hearts desire. Give me more, give me more, give me more. What kind of bread is it that we hunger for though? What, what is this wrong bread? We hunger for the bread of self-gratification. And this is why fasting is such a good and necessary spiritual discipline. Our longings for physical fulfillment are but a shadow often of our heart's desire for self-fulfillment. Now what's wrong with that? Again, some might ask. What's wrong with that is that you weren't made for that purpose. What's wrong with that is we were made to be satisfied in him. But all of us have spurned the God of the universe and said, no thanks, I'm full. Ever since the sin of our first father, Adam, we too have shown consistent distrust in God's word in which he reveals his good nature. We've sought to fill ourselves full of bread that affirms our own truth rather than God's. This type of bread will only leave us temporarily bloated and constantly searching for the next fill. This is the bread of material success, popular praise, envious gains. This is the bread which would even have us searching the scriptures, not for sanctification or growing in grace and knowledge, but for growing in self-affirmation, which is the issue with this crowds. There's one who accuses you, and it's Moses, the one whom you look to. So the question for us, church, is 
What are you hungry for? What bread are you seeking to be filled by? Because Jesus continues to expound on this. Verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So we know that there is a food which perishes, which will lead us to constantly searching for more. But there is another food, another bread, which will fill us to eternal life. And that sounds great, doesn't it? All we have to do is come to the table and eat. All we have to do is wake up and pick up the bread, just as Israel in the wilderness. Just wake up, the bread's there, we get to pick it up, and we get to fill our bellies and live life to the fullest. Problem is, we do this with the wrong bread. This bread has to be given to us. Again, notice Jesus' words, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So what's Jesus getting at by making that distinction? What he's trying to say here, he's the bread. This bread is not something we can just gather on our own. Rather, it must be given, and it must be given by one whom has the authority to give it and to satisfy those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Which is, of course, what the law of Moses demands. You shall be holy, for I am holy. So those who truly hunger for the word, those who truly seek to fulfill the word, hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does Jesus say in the Beatitudes? We were there just a few weeks ago, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? for they will be satisfied. And we don't desire this bread naturally. We don't want this bread. Why? Because it doesn't have the same sugary, sweet taste that satisfies our flesh. Well, you say, how do you know that? What was the response of the people to Jesus saying this? We keep reading. Pick back up verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What box do we need to check to get this special bread? How do we get this bread which is so different? What are you talking about, Jesus? They filtered Jesus' words through the lens of their own traditions. There must have been something we missed in the law. There must have been something we weren't doing. So now how do I do that so that I can get this good bread? Verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So whose work is it? God's. And then what does it require? What does it produce? Belief, faith in him whom he has sent. Aha. So faith is a work. Yes, it is. But as we see, it's done by who? This is the work of of God. It's not a work, faith is not a work that we can do on our own, nor one which calls attention to our own merit, but faith calls attention to God's glory. And they don't like this answer. So watch what they say next, and it just infuriates me. Verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? 
Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Do the trick, Jesus. If you're really who you say you are and your bread is so special, give us the bread. Make it rain manna. Moses did it. If you're as great as you say you are, as you're as great as we thought you were, if Moses really wrote about you, if you're the true prophet, come to be better than Moses, then do what Moses did and fill our bellies with manna. You see, church, we too often demand of Jesus what is satisfying to us rather than what will satisfy us in him. This is the challenge, the cycle that we constantly place ourselves in. We demand of Jesus what is satisfying to us rather than what will satisfy us in him. Consider whatever situation you find yourself in this morning. High point, low point of life, somewhere in between. What have your prayers looked like and who have they been settled on satisfying? Do they sound like Psalm 90? Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Again, the focus here entirely in Psalm 90 is on God, let us be satisfied in you and may your work show your glory to your children, to our children. Of course, Psalm 90 written by who? Copy of the Song of Moses. The whole point here is to be satisfied in him. But we spend so much time seeking and demanding of Jesus simply what will satisfy us and our desires. So do our prayers in the midst of the high, the low, in between, do they sound like that or do they sound like prayers that are focused squarely on satisfying us in something else other than Christ? You see, church, this is the first of Jesus' seven I am statements, identifying himself as one with the Father. Again, this is what the crowd is not seeing. And the only one from the Father who has the seal to deliver salvation. We have this one. I am the bread of life. We go on to see in John chapter 8 and chapter 9. I am the light of the world. We go on to chapter 10. I am the door of the sheep. Continue in chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 15, I am the true vine. All of this showing not only is he one with the Father and the one whom the Father has sent, affirming his deity, but affirming that he is the only one who has the seal to deliver salvation. So unless you have the bread of life, you don't have life. Unless you have had the light of the world, then you're living in what? Darkness. If you're trying to enter by any other door other than the door of the sheep, which you are led to by the good shepherd, then you're lost. If you don't have, if you're not in the one who is the resurrection and the life, then what are you? Dead. If you don't have resurrection and life, then you're dead. 
If you're not with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, you're still dead. If you're not in the true vine, then you're dead. Interestingly enough, Philip, the one whom Jesus looks to in this story of feeding the 5,000, later on in chapter 14, when Jesus is making the statement, I am the way, the truth, and life, Philip says, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus says, have I not been with you all this time and you still don't know? You say, show me the Father, but I am here. We continue to verse 32 to see Jesus' response to the crowd saying, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Moses gave them bread. Give us more bread if you're the one. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. This is maybe one of the more significant chunks of this story right here is what Jesus says. Because he highlights the misunderstanding of the people of Israel as a whole. Going all the way back to the instance of Moses and the bread. Because he highlights, it wasn't Moses who gave your fathers the bread. It was my father. This was a repeated problem. It wasn't Moses who parted the Red Sea. Moses lifted his hands and the Lord sent a strong east wind. Moses goes to the Father and the Lord provides manna overnight. But who do the people look to as their provider? Moses. And Jesus says, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread. And so now here you are faced again with the same time given that I am the bread and you don't see who's provided it for you. This was a consistent problem for Israel all the way up till now. Not recognizing God's hand and presence and his action in preserving them and providing for them. Continue to verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So just like your fathers in the wilderness, you've seen me and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So again, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, resurrection and the life, way, the truth and the life, true vine. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. And only those whom the Father brings to him, all the Father give me, Jesus says. 
can have the bread. Everyone who looks on the sun, well, how do you look to the sun? Your eyes have to be turned to the sun. The point here is that Jesus must be our all-satisfying joy. You can't be seeking the wrong bread because you're seeking to have your joy in other things. If anything, if you're seeking joy in anything outside of Jesus, your joy is misplaced. Jesus must be our all-satisfying joy. This is it, folks. This is the heart of the gospel. All the earthly, fleshly longings that we have must find their ultimate satisfaction in Christ. The problem is that outside of the Father's work of drawing us to faith, we don't want the bread of Christ. We just want the bread of self-gratification. If your joy is not found in Christ, hear the gospel, repent, and believe. Only not everyone wants this true bread. Continue reading, verse 41 of chapter 6. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So don't miss, there's a few significant things to see here. Verse 41, their response was what? They grumbled. What was God's response to the grumbling of the children of Israel? They provided them the bread. So we're seeing a repeated theme here. They grumbled. They've been told the best news of all, the good news of the all-satisfying bread of eternal life, and they grumbled. Not only do they grumble, they, they humiliate Jesus. Isn't this... The one whose mother got pregnant out of wedlock? Isn't this the one from Nazareth? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They grumbled. Not everyone wants the true bread. Everyone wants the sugary sweet bread of self-gratification. Everyone wants that bread. Now, I've told you to kind of keep all these things in mind as we've been moving through this story. So let's look back on this story real quick before we move forward to the end and see what has been happening, how, how this story has been laid out. So you go back to chapter 5, and we see that Jesus tells them in verse 45, chapter 5, Moses, on whom you have set your hope, is the one who accuses you. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And Jesus goes on to do what? Just as Moses, Jesus provides a miracle of bread to feed this whole crew. And then what happens? His disciples go out on the boat. And Jesus doesn't part the sea to walk on dry ground. He controls the sea and walks on water. On the other side of that, just as the Lord provided for the people, rescued them from slavery, and they grumbled in the wilderness, even after the Lord had provided for all their needs, we see the people grumbling as Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Moses could only provide what the Father gave through him. I am the true bread that the Father now has sent. Moses wasn't the bread. I am the bread. Moses had to pray to the Lord to get the bread. I am the bread. Moses had to walk through on dry ground. I walked on the water. 
Jesus is the true and better Moses, written of in Deuteronomy 18, 18. How do we look on the Son and believe? How do we look to this true and better Moses? Not for political power, not to provide us with tricks so that he can lead a charge against the governments of the world. How do we get this true bread of life? Because this is the purpose, not to lead a revolt or a governmental power, but to create for himself a people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language that would eat of this bread and be filled for eternity. So how do we get it? How do we look on the sun and believe? How do we get the true bread of life? Verse 43 of chapter 6. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus goes on to freak the crowd out by telling them that they must, in order to obtain this, they must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. And it effectively weeds out all those who did not want the true bread as they leave. And Jesus is left with the disciples, those whom he's called. And they say to him, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? There in verse 60. But Jesus, knowing in himself the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, so now his disciples are grumbling, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And he goes on to ask if they would like to leave. And he says, do you want to go as well? In verse 67, 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The same thing must happen to us. We must behold his truth as written in his word of how he has revealed himself and who he has revealed himself to be through Christ the Son that we may come and believe having been brought to faith by the Father. No one comes unless the Father draws him. It is only by his grace that we can be saved. How do we look on the Son and believe? How do we get the true bread of life? Only by his grace. No one comes unless the Father draws. Some will say, how can that be so? That's not loving. To which I answer with a question, has he not given unbelievers breath in their lungs and a beat in their heart and ears to hear the gospel? But again, as we saw with this crowd and as we've seen throughout scripture, not everyone wants the bread of life. Everyone wants the sugary sweet bread of self-gratification. 
Their hearts are stone, and it's only by the power of the Spirit piercing our hearts with the truth of the gospel that we can believe. See, stony hearts don't repent unless they're pierced and broken by the truth of the gospel. Stony hearts indulge in the bread of self-gratification. The blind man does not gain his sight by simply opening his eyes. The blind man can only gain his sight if something miraculous happens within him. In fact, this is another sign which Jesus performs just a few chapters later. The Father is drawing. Will you feast on the bread of life and never be hungry again, or will you sit there and grumble with bloated bellies in the bread of self-gratification? This is the call to the world. So what are you hungry for, church? What bread are you looking for? Because what kind of bread you're looking for, you'll find it. You'll find the bread of self-gratification. It's everywhere. Everywhere. It's plentiful available. You wake up, it's there, everywhere, all over the floor in the morning. But it's only through the Father's grace that you can come to realize the, the true bread of life. Let me pray as we transition to taking the Lord's Supper. Lord, we love you. Pray that you would help us to never be satiated with the bread of this world. Help us to only find satisfaction in the true bread of life that is you, Jesus. Help us to be honest with ourselves in taking a look in the mirror and asking what bread we're seeking now. Where are we focused? Where are we finding joy? And help us to find our joy only in you. Lord, I pray for anyone who's here who may not have their joy in you, who maybe has been indulging in the bread of self-gratification for their entire life. I pray that you would make your grace known to them, break through the stony exterior of their heart, pierce their hearts with the truth of your word, draw them to yourself that they may feast on the bread of life and never be hungry again. Lord, as we prepare to take this Lord's Supper, I pray that you would help us to take so in a worthy manner that is worshipful to you. Seeing and celebrating and savoring the new covenant that was bought and paid for by your flesh and through your blood. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.